Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. For the rest of church, I guess. Um, man, I'm really excited to, to be here today. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Phil Schaefer. I am the worship pastor here at Church 214. Occasionally I get to preach. Um, I have a beautiful wife, Becca, sitting right in the front here. And apparently, yeah. And apparently my three-year-old son, Lex, is uh, wanting to hear me preach today instead of go back to kids. Yeah. It's awesome. Also, have a six-year-old, and he's he he went immediately. So we'll or no, he's not six yet. He's almost six. Whoops, he took Collins. There we go. That well, we're good. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Kip. Yeah. Um, well, I hope you've enjoyed Dark Corners so far. You know, it's this is a really interesting series because, like, I think like the way that it started in the teaching team meeting, it it. It just sort of evolved over time, and we kind of um, mashed a couple of different really awesome ideas together, and somehow um, it's, it's working out so far, and, and next week when, when Chris finishes up, I, I think it's, you're, you're going to be surprised. Well, you shouldn't be because this always happens, just how well everything fits together, because honestly, we don't talk that much between preacher to preacher as to like what we're doing, we kind of check a little bit just to make sure there isn't like doubling up on stuff or that we're sort of on the same ballpark, but really the Holy Spirit does like 99% of the planning, and so, or really 100%, I probably shouldn't, I probably shouldn't claim 1% for us, but <laughs> yeah, um, but for the first two weeks of the series, we really focused on the dark corners of our hearts and minds. And now we're going to like transition to, we're going to focus on the dark corners of the spiritual realm. Okay, and it's not going to be scary, I promise. It's actually, I hope this is like one of the most interesting messages uh, and fun messages maybe if I can, we'll see. I, I don't know how fun I am, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm going to really try. Um, it was prophesied over me right before I came up here, so I'm going to receive it. So, um, so in doing so, when we talk about the dark corners of the spiritual realm, we're going to discover the origin of all the world religions. And we're going to study this concept of regions which are physical geographic regions that are under the influence of specific demonic spirits. Now, if you've never heard of that before, it's okay. On the podcast, in the room, it's okay. We'll, we'll get you there, okay? Now, this is an, an important discussion to have because since the Middle Ages, the church has grossly watered down the spiritual realm to be God... Satan, and then a bunch of foot soldiers, angels and demons. And two-thirds of them are angels, and one-third of them are demons. So God's army's bigger, and he's ultimately going to win. And, like, the only problem with that is, so it's, it's no one's fault, right? I mean, I guess the guys in the Middle Ages, it's their fault. But, uh, but we inherited this view. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm, I'm just going after everybody today. So we inherited this viewpoint, but the problem with that is it's really not supported anywhere in the text. At all. Like Paul said in Ephesians 6.12 that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this present darkness. And if it was just Satan and his demons that we had to worry about, he would have written that. Okay? He didn't write that because he didn't believe it. So this, that, that one verse right there tells us that there's a lot more going on in the spiritual realm. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about this, but the passages tend to hide in plain sight. And so my hope, we're going to cover so much scripture. I'm going to try to set the record uh, for how much scripture we have in the message. Um, so we'll see. But uh, my hope is not to provide a comprehensive teaching uh, because I would need like three, four, six months for that. Okay, my hope is I give you just enough to be dangerous. 
like just enough for you to have a thousand questions. I seriously, I hope every single one of you have a thousand questions at the end of this message because that's going to drive you back into the text, hopefully, and it's going to drive you into conversation with others and try to figure out what this, what the implications of all this stuff really is. And, and, and that's honestly my only goal. Um, so you're, you're not going to get three amazing, like practical application points like Kip gave you last week. It's just not going to happen today. And it might seem like we focus a lot on the spiritual realm at this church, and we do. We will wear that badge with honor, but we don't do it because we're charismatic. We don't do it because we think that there's a demon around every corner and they're the cause of everything bad in your life. In fact, if you ask me, I would say that demons cause very little of the bad stuff in your life. It's mostly our own stupidity and the stupidity of others. But they certainly are a cause. And the more that you get attacked, the more that you can be sure that you're probably on the right track. Okay? Now, if the, the reason why we, we do this, honestly, we talk about it so much because the Bible does. Okay? And in fact, I'm going to show you in the text that the physical and the spiritual realms are basically mirror images of each other. Okay? And if we can start to make these connections in the text and connections in our minds, it will help us better understand who God is and what he is doing and why he is doing it. And can we all agree that that's worth knowing? And if we start to understand those things, then it will help us understand who we are as his children what we are supposed to do as his imagers, and why we are supposed to do it as his church. And can we agree that that's worth doing? Hey, only four people agree. Fine. Um, so now if we're going to cover the origin of religions and regions, we must talk about the sons of God and the divine council. And if I didn't have your attention before, I certainly have it now. Because some of you are going, hold on a second, what Bible is he reading? I've never heard of that stuff before. Don't worry, I'll show you. It's in the text, it's very plain. And, and some of this stuff is going to sound, it's going to seem heavy and dense, um, and it might even seem complicated. But it's not hard to understand. I believe with all of my heart that every single person that hearing my voice right now can understand this stuff. This is, you do not need a PhD, I certainly don't have one, to, to understand this, Okay. We do not teach our kids like they can understand tough ideas at this church, and we will not teach the adults that way either. Okay, we can get this. So let's start off, let's start off real slow with one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, the, the book of Job, the story of Job. Let's go to Job chapter 1. Many of you have heard this, this story before. Uh, Job chapter 1, verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God... Okay, so it's in there. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Now, basically every preacher will tell you that sons of God just means, keep the, you got to keep the verse up there. I, I, like, I like to be a teacher and point to stuff. Um, it's a nice LED wall, so I got to take advantage of it. So, Pretty much every preacher is going to say that the sons of God, they're either going to not talk about it, they're just going to be like, eh, skip right to the Satan part. Or they're going to say, well, that's just another term for angel. And the problem with that is the, the words, because it doesn't say angel. It doesn't say it in English, and it doesn't say it in Hebrew either. Okay, if you look at the Hebrew word for angel, that word is malak, which just means messenger. Okay? Well, there's actually two words there in Hebrew. Sons of God is actually bene Elohim. Sons of God. Now, for those of you that have been in church for a while, you'll recognize that word Elohim. You'll be like, wait a minute, I thought that was a name for God. It, it can be, but I'm going to show you that it's actually more of a noun than a name for God. Okay? Does that make sense? Even if it doesn't, it's okay. It will make sense eventually. Now, so, so these, now again, angel is malak, messenger. And that's what we call, so we call it angel in English. And then in English for this, this term, we get sons of God. Now, does that sound like they're the same thing? Okay, the answer is no. It doesn't sound like they're the same thing because they're not the same thing. Sons of God sounds like something more than an angel. At least I hope it does to you. Okay? Now, I, lo I love this text also because in the second half, I love how God talks to Satan here because he's, it's like, Hey, where have you been? Well, first off, God's omniscient, so he's all-knowing. 
and he's omnipresent, which means he was with Satan in, in reality down when he was on earth. But he asks him that question in the presence of these other divine beings that he created, which are more than angels, to say, hey, where have you been? And then Satan has to answer in public so that he's sort of humiliated and mocked in front of in all of these people because God's basically reminding him, hey, you're not omniscient. You're not omnipresent. I'm the most high God. And so we do take Satan very seriously at this church, but we also understand that he has severe limitations compared to the God that's on our side that goes before us. Okay. So you always got to look for that mocking language in the text. It's very fun. Um, so let's keep, go- let's keep going with later on in Job, chapter 38. Okay, Job is complaining, and then God has had enough. He's had enough, and he shows up. And he's like, where were you? You know, dress, dress like a man, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you the riot act. And in chapter 38, he's kind of talking about, hey, Job, where were you when I created the universe? Um, and in, in verse 7, he says something very interesting. Where were you when the morning stars sang together? Now, and the sons of God shouted for joy. There is, again, B'nai Elohim. Um, so raise your hand if you've ever heard a star sing before at any time of day. And you can't say, I saw a YouTube video that was a kid's cartoon of a star singing like, uh, you know, Twinkle Twinkle or something. Okay, stars don't sing. And it's not like a metaphor for the sun just being the sun as a song. The morning stars is actually another name, another descriptor of the sons of God. Okay, so we actually have two sets of terms referring to these divine beings created by God that are more powerful than angels, that are also a part of God's family. And there was this time before creation and during creation when all of God's spiritual family, the sons of God and the angels, were united as one and singing together, worshiping as God created the universe. And I'll even use the term for sons of God, I'll, call, I'll start calling them lesser gods because that's, that's really what they are. And again, all created. The most high God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the only uncreated one. But that doesn't mean that there can't be other divine beings more than angels but less than him. Right? No one's going to... And this, is, this should be straightforward, but it's not. Does anyone, does anyone agree that Satan is the same as just a regular demon? I realize I kind of led the witness a little bit with how I said that, but we, we, we don't believe that Satan is just one of the demons. Okay, well, if there's a hierarchy there, then why wouldn't there be a hierarchy elsewhere? Okay, like we, we just got, let's, we got to think just a little bit further with this. And so some of you might be saying, okay, I give it up, sons of God, fine. But this divine counsel thing, come on. Like, where's that in the text? Psalm 82, I will show you. (laughs) Psalm 82, verse 5. God has taken his place in the, say it with me, divine council. There it is. And this is the ESV. This is not some weird translation, okay? Now, let's keep going. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. That's not even sons of God. Now it's rendered just, and, and and the Hebrew word there, guess what? It's Elohim. It's Elohim. I thought that was a name for God. Yes, it is. It's also a noun referring to a, simply a God, a divine being. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So there we have it. The Most High God leads this divine council of lesser gods, and in the midst of them, he holds judgment. That's what was happening in Job chapter 1. Okay, And then the psalmist says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Who's the wicked? Oh, it's mankind. We're the ones that sin in Genesis 3. Yeah, but we're not in this passage. So the gods sinned. And the psalmist is asking the Most High God, hey, when are you going to judge them for what they did? And then God, and then now it's as if God is speaking. I said, you are gods. Now God is calling them lesser gods. So don't, don't shoot the messenger. God said it. I call, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. 
So the gods, these sons of God, these lesser gods, these lesser divine beings sinned and they did something to warrant this separation, this curse of death, just like we have, right? And then verse 8 says something very interesting. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Now that's a weird thing to say, right? Because if God's the God of everything, how does he, why would he inherit the nations? Doesn't he have all of the nations? That word nations is very important. You can't just read that as, oh, it means a people group. Okay? So, guys, everything that happened in the physical realm in Genesis 3, creation, Adam and Eve, everything was perfect in the garden for a while, and then there was sin and the fall and separation. All of that stuff, unity, perfection, sin, fall, separation, curse of death, that same exact stuff happened in the spiritual realm too with the sons of God. Now, there was no fruit involved, but the same thing happened. They're mirror images of each other. And I didn't make it up. The Bible says it happened. Okay? So, what about this nations thing? God inheriting the nations. Well, now we get to the origin story. Let's go to Genesis 6. It says... When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, hallelujah, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so, again, why does this matter? Why is this a big deal? Well, the sons of God were not created to be with women. Men were created to be with women. That's it. It's the only pairing that God designed to work. Period. Okay? So we have disobedience in the, creative, the created order, but we also have outright rebellion here. And it doesn't really come through in the text, but if you read the rest of the Old Testament, it should come through to you. The sons of God were trying to make their own versions of humans that were, that were better than God's and that would dominate them. They basically told Yahweh, you made humans? Watch this. We'll make better ones. They're going to be bigger and stronger than yours, and they're going to subdue them. They're going to dominate them, and then we will be worshipped instead of you because our creation was better than your creation. And of course, we know it didn't play out that way. The giants, the last of the giants, were killed by David. And I got my David reference in. <laughs> the physical representation of this rebellion, this rivalry with Yahweh, was crushed by David. The spiritual representation of that rebellion will be crushed, is crushed later on by the son of David, the better David, right? Jesus Christ. Do you see the parallel between the physical and the spiritual? Now, this tells us something very important about the Bible and really about just reality. Jesus didn't show up just to fix the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. He also showed up to fix and crush the rebellion from Genesis 6. So he's on two missions now, not just one. Okay? Let's keep going. So you have the sons of God. Then you have the flood. And after the flood, no one his family leave the ark. And in Genesis chapter 10, you get a really boring chapter, which is just 70 names. They're the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. It's called the Table of Nations in some of your Bibles. And I'm not going to read all 70 names. But at the very last verse, it says this, Genesis 10.32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, Psalm 82, in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Then what happens in Genesis 11? The Tower of Babel. Okay? I think we're all familiar with the Tower of Babel, right? Let's go ahead and go to verse 4, Genesis 11, verse 4. 
Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So when they say, let us make a name for ourselves, they're not like choosing a team name. Okay, they're forging their own identity. They're throwing away the identity that God placed on them as his children because what does it say? The city and the tower that the children of man built, not the children of God. Okay, they were children of God until they, forced, until they threw away the identity that God placed on them and tried to make a name for themselves, an identity for themselves. And doesn't that sound familiar? So the world, guys, what's happening in the world today, they desperately want you to believe that this is somehow unique, that it's somehow the first time that we've ever come up with these sorts of ideas. And the problem with that is that just when, because you come up with a new word for something doesn't mean you've discovered a new concept at all. In fact, we've been doing this since Genesis 11, which for the record is a very long time ago. And, and, and so it's not just, it's the only, it's the oldest trick in the book and it's honestly the only trick that we have. It's the only trick we have. You either choose the identity that God gave you or you make one for yourself. I don't know. With, I'd rather be called a child of God instead of a child of man. And then again with the mocking language. And the Lord came down to see the tower. Like, first off, God doesn't have eyesight problems. Okay? He's omnipotent. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's omnipresent. But this was written this way to emphasize the futile nature of man's pursuit to become like God. And so God's way up in heaven being like, hmm, they're really proud of that tower down there. Maybe I better go down and see it. <laughs> That's how small it was compared to how big he is, right? Let's keep going. Verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for, for them. And I love this verse because even though the context is incredibly negative, this tells you probably more so than any other verse in the Bible, the power of unity. God himself, this isn't a heresy, God himself said they have one language. They're totally united in the pursuit of this one vision. Nothing will be impossible for them. And you might say, wow, hold on a second. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Guess what? Think about the last several thousand years of human civilization. How much war, how much division, division racism, slavery, strife. We've destro almost destroyed ourselves several times. What if seven billion people, with all the money and resources we have, had one language, had one vision, had zero division, zero war? Do you think, you think this thing right here would still be around, we would have invented this hundreds of years ago. This isn't conjecture, it's real. What if humanity was completely united? And we did this without God's help. We can cure cancer sometimes without God's help. We can build buildings, highways, LED walls. None of that with God's help. Now, did he allow it to happen? Yes, he did. But he didn't come and make us design these things. We're, we're, when we do stuff like this, we're his imagers. We are, he is a creator. We are creators. This thing did not exist before. It was nothing for thousands of years. And then somebody thought, well, what if I could have... Then somebody invented a phone. And then someone said, I invented a camera. Well, now, what if we put a camera in a phone? And what if it's only this big? And what if it has access to all the information ever? Like, this thing didn't used to exist, guys. And we did it without God's help. In fact, God probably would rather us not have these things. So we didn't need God's help. It's not heresy. This is the power of unity, and this is why we protect it so fiercely at this church. Because when we're united in one vision with, as one people pursuing what God would have for us, and he's on our side, that's, talk, that's two or three times impossible. How about that? Okay? Now, the rest of the passage is very simple, right? So God confuses their language, and they're dispersed over the face of the earth. And the problem with that is it's not really the whole story because we actually get some more detail about what happened at Babel in Deuteronomy. Okay, so now we need to go to Deuteronomy 32. This, this passage should absolutely mess you up. Okay. When the Most High gave to the nations, Genesis 10, Psalm 82, their inheritance, 
when he divided mankind, really quick, when was the only time in history he ever divided mankind? Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Okay? He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God? What? But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So, what happened in Genesis 6 with the sons of God and the flood and the Tower of Babel is the reason why we have all of these religions today. Because these lesser gods were given the nations to rule as representatives of Yahweh, and Yahweh kept Israel for himself. All of humanity was part of God's family until Genesis 11, and then they, they said, nope, no thanks, we want our own identity. So God said, okay, fine. You're not a part of my family anymore. Only Israel is a part of my family. And not only are you going to, not only is that going to be the case, you're no longer in relationship with me. You now get these lesser gods instead of me. That's what Deuteronomy 32 says. Okay? These lesser gods were given the nations to rule as representatives of Yahweh, and they were supposed to direct those peoples back to Yahweh, but they didn't. They took the worship for themselves, and they weren't created to take the worship for themselves. And they brought further corruption to humanity. And so if these lesser gods with real power are given these nations to rule, then these religions that Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, any, you name it, those are not just figments of somebody's imagination. Like some dude wasn't walking through the forest one day and was like, oh, Hinduism. And then he, did, he didn't go tell his neighbor, and his neighbor was like, you know what, that sounds good. His neighbor would have been like, uh, excuse me, lay off whatever it is you've been drinking or eating lately. It would have never worked that way. Okay, people don't sacrifice their children to some god that some dude made up. They sacrifice their children to a God that they believe is real. And the only way they're going to believe it's real is if they have a really good reason to believe that he's real. Some sort of actual experience. So these people are not worshiping just myths. They're worshiping real demonic beings. These were people responding in a very real way to a very real divine beings, acting in such a way that people would worship them instead of Yahweh, and they ultimately ruled with fear because they convinced all of those peoples that they had to perform for them to get any sort of favor in the afterlife, any sort of eternal life. And the only faith on earth that exists, the only religion on earth that exists that is not that built that way is ours, where you can't do anything to get to heaven. Jesus has to come get you. Jesus has to come get you. Everybody else has to figure out a way to get to that God that's ruling over them. So these sons of God, these demonic spirits still at work to, are still at work today, and they're trying to exert control over various regions around the world. And so they didn't go anywhere, but the map has changed a lot, and, and a lot of religions are global now. And, and so I can't give you like a 2022 version of the spiritual realm like map for you. Okay, it's, it's, it's not in the text. It's, I, I, God hasn't shown that to me. Now, can we discern what spirits are at work, say, in our region? Yes, absolutely we can. Uh, we're probably going to talk more about that in, maybe even next week. Hopefully, I'm sure Chris will get that. If not, he'll, I'm forcing him to talk about it. So, <laughs> and um, we can certainly discern that with the Holy Spirit. Okay. But the text doesn't have that. That, that that's, that's all I'm saying. But what I can give you are a couple of examples in the Old Testament where specific demonic spirits, specific sons of God are referenced. Okay? Let's go to Isaiah 14. Uh, in my Bible, it's listed as the taunt against the king of Babylon. Uh, because, which makes sense. You know, Isaiah is prophesying against, maybe let's say it's Nebuchadnezzar. You know, you took the people of Judah into captivity. Those are God's chosen people. And you're going to eventually, eventually, you know, God's going to come for you. And that's how basically everyone that preaches this passage would preach it. The only problem with that is the text. Because, um, and 
Because there are some verses in here that would, are really easy to be like, yeah, that's referring to a human king. But I'm gonna, going to uh, propose that this, this passage is referring to the human king of Babylon and the spiritual king of Babylon. Let's just look at one, a couple verses. Verse 9, uh, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. Uh, Sheol is just another name for the, the realm of the dead. Uh, it rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. So that'd be really, there's a lot of double meaning in that verse, but I'll, I'll go ahead and give you that one. If you just say, all right, yeah, I mean, so the king of Babylon is going to live, and then he's going to die, and he'll go to the underworld, and he's going to join all the other kings that came before him. Pretty simple. All right, but you can't say that once you get to verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Did the king of Babylon fall from heaven ever? No, he didn't. O day star, son of dawn. Does that sound anything like the language in Job 38? Okay. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low, you who said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, divine counsel, not, not the sun, the divine council, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Doesn't that sound a lot like Babel language too? This demonic being was saying the same things that the people of, well, the children of man were saying in Genesis 11. You see that parallel with, between the physical and the spiritual again. So this passage is not just referring to the human king of Babylon, it's referring to a one of the sons of God, a divine council member that was ruling over that region of Babylon. And then, to keep with the theme of Babylon, Daniel chapter 13, uh, 10, verse 13, we get a really weird exchange here. Daniel is having all these visions in the back half of the book of Daniel, and then an angel is trying to get to him, and in verse 13, 12 and 13, the angel's like, hey, Daniel, I'm sorry I was late. Um, I was trying to get to you to deliver this message from God, but, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Now, if this really is an angel, do you think that a single human being, a single human prince of Persia would be able to fight continuously against an angel of God for 21 days? Okay, when, when's the prince of Persia going to sleep and eat and drink? Okay, but Michael, one of the chief princes, sometimes referred to as an archangel, so there it is, there's more hierarchy in the spiritual realm, it's right there in the text. One of the archangels, one of the most powerful angels that God created, came to help me. He comes, fights the, king, the prince of Persia, so the lesser angel, the messenger angel, can get to Daniel to deliver the message. So there you have it, there's two region, regional rulers in the spiritual realm in the text, the king of Babylon, the prince of Persia, there's a bunch more. We don't have time to go into it. So at this point, you're probably saying, okay, so you found these obscure passages in the Old Testament about this stuff, but like, but Jesus, you know, Jesus, he just like healed people and preached a lot, you know, he didn't, well, not, not really. Um, most of his ministry was actually attacking regional demonic rulers in the spiritual realm. You just don't really know it because you have to kind of read the text a little differently. You have to not read it differently. You have to think in the historical context of what's going on. So let's go to Matthew 16. Very famous passage. We, we teach from this passage a lot. It says, when, verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now let's pause right there. I've got some pictures I want to show you. Uh, let's go with the first one. So this is a rendering of what Caesarea Philippi would have looked like in the first century when Jesus and his disciples would have been there. So you see it's kind of built into this hillside. And then you've got the wall kind of coming around this way. And right here you have something called the Grotto of Pan. This is a temple complex. Pan is a Greek god, and so this was a cult center for worshiping the god Pan. He was sort of the patron saint, if you will, of this city. 
Okay, well, this is what it looks like today. You can still go here, by the way. There's the cave right here. There's the ruins of the city, the temple complex kind of in front of it. There's the cave. Look how small those people are, how big this is. And there's a bunch of little nooks carved into the, to the, to the side of that where they would have little idols and they would offer like incense and sacrifices and stuff too. Go to the next one. This is what it looks like a little bit more close up. There you can see some more smaller things clearly carved into the side of that rock here, this cliff face. Last one. This is what it looks like. It's actually not very deep. But when you get to the edge, all you see is this pool of water that just goes into nothing. Okay? We also have archaeological evidence. You can take, go back to the passage. We also have archaeological evidence that worship at this cave was happening thousands of years before the Greeks, except they were worshiping Baal. This has always been a cult center of worship since people discovered it. That cave is considered a portal to hell. In Greek mythology, in Baal cultic worship, that cave is a portal into hell. Now, let's keep reading the passage. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, so Jesus himself told you explicitly, spiritual realm and physical realm are linked. In that last verse, go back to the, go back to the picture of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, the rendering. Okay. Does it make sense for God to, for Jesus to say, I know Peter's name means rock, but it's a little bit weird to say, well, on Peter, I'm going to build the church. Because Peter wasn't the only guy, right? He was definitely super important. But that passage is actually used by the Catholic church to kind of say, well, Peter's different and he's the first pope. Okay. Do you see any rocks in the picture? Hey, so Jesus would not have pointed out Peter in that way because he wouldn't have singled him out. It's like, well, you're different, right? When he says on this rock, I'm going to build my church, we have every reason to believe that Jesus and his disciples are standing on top of this cliff because this is the only rock in the picture they could have been standing on that was inside Caesarea Philippi. And where were they standing above? The gates of hell. Right here. Okay. So is this, we were talking about this at Basement Nights. Is this offensive or defensive language? Offensive language. Okay. I've heard this passage taught countless times in a defensive way, meaning we are the church and we'll be able to endure the gates of hell. Okay. First of all, um, when's the last time a gate has attacked you? You know, like, they open and close, and they might look scary in horror movies, but, like, they don't attack you. That makes no sense. This is an offensive passage, meaning the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the onslaught of the church with Jesus Christ leading the way as we pull off the greatest jailbreak of all time. Okay? And as we close, I'm going to show you that Jesus didn't just show up to fix the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, and he didn't just show up to fix the rebellion of the sons of God in Genesis 6, he also showed up to fix what happened at Babel in Genesis 11. And to do that, we have to go to our favorite passage at this church, Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost. Let's start in verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Genesis 10, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 82. 
And at the, sound, at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty work of God. All the nations were there. And that had never happened before in human history except one other time in Genesis 11. So a couple thousand years after Babel, God decides to bring Jews back from all across those 70 nations. Okay, to Jerusalem for this moment. They were all together. And just like the Tower of Babel, they heard all these, everyone was hearing these different languages. Now, if I was a fly on the wall, it would have sounded like Babel, right? It would have sounded like Babel at first. But where there was confusion and division before, Holy Spirit brought clarity and unity while maintaining the diversity. They had one language before and he said, nope, you're going to have a bunch of languages. And then he shows up again in Acts 2 and he's like, you know what? You know what? You're going to keep your languages. You're going to keep your culture. You're going to keep your diversity. But this time we're going to be unified in all of those things. I'm going to show you that it can be done. It sounded the same. It sounded exactly the same as Genesis 11, but the result was redemption not division. And for the first time, for the very first time in history, these people were hearing of the mighty works of God in their own language. That had never happened before. And so Acts 2 was God's announcement to the physical realm and the spiritual realm. I'm starting to reclaim the nations. I'm starting to inherit the nations just like the psalmist begged me to do in Psalm 82. I disinherited you at Babel. Because you gave up the identity that I placed on you, but I kept Israel for myself, Israel for my portion, and through Israel I sent my son Jesus who defeated death and established my kingdom on earth, and now I'm beginning to reclaim the nations once again. And guess what? I'm not going to do it all by myself. I'm actually going to use my children from Israel to go launch the global church, and they're going to go to all of the nations into all the world and tell the nations that they are no longer enslaved to those gods, those lesser gods. They're free and they're welcome back into my family. It's time to make my family whole again. This is what was happening in the lead up to Acts 2.14 when Peter stepped forward with the other 11 disciples and began to preach. Guys, this is literal. this is what God is doing and why he's doing it. And this is exactly why we're doing what we're doing at Church 2.14. This is what we're up to and why we're doing it here. Can you, I mean... Maybe I'm the only one that, that's just, I, 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 I get wrecked by this stuff. It's so easy to think that, hey, why don't you stand up on your feet and bow your heads and pray. Guys, it's so easy to think that, that the Bible is just about us. And how messed up we are. And Jesus is going to come fix it all. And that's really, really good news. But that's also a really, really small view of God. It's not just, God's family is not just him and us. He's got a spiritual family too. And we're going to join that spiritual family one day because this body's going to wear out. And the spirit inside of us is going to live on and is going to, I think, 
join his family if you are a follower of Jesus. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, you will not rejoin his family. So right now, I just want us to be overwhelmed with the bigness of God and and, and what he's doing and why he's doing it. I want us to be overwhelmed with how much he loves us. That throughout history, this thread of hope, little tiny thread of hope remained. And then his son Jesus showed up in history. didn't show up as a conquering king. He showed up as a servant. Because he knew that he had to die. Because the only way that we can join God's family is if Jesus takes care of it. The only way we can be called a children, the children of God instead of the children of man is if Jesus takes care of it. And then as he, after he ascends to heaven, Holy Spirit shows up with tongues of fire on his people in Jerusalem and says, go reclaim the nations, bring all of my family back to me. So if you, if you don't know Jesus, man, I would, I would just ask that you, you just surrender to him right now. Just surrender to him right now. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to say, you don't have to confess everything you've ever done. You don't have to say a 10-minute prayer. You say, Jesus, I need you. I'm a, I'm a sinner, and I need you. I want to join your family. I, I, I repent of my sin. I turn away from that. And I turn towards you. And to those of you that already know Jesus, I would just ask you, what are you up to? What are you doing? with the time you have left and why are you doing it? So much is being stirred up in the spiritual realm right now, even in the last week. So much oppression, demonic dreams, just intimidating situations. Because God's trying to reclaim the nations in this region right now. And the regional rulers are not going to go down without a fight. They know they will lose. They know they're going to lose. They're well aware of that. The Bible says even the demons believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They know know their place. They know their destiny. But they are not going down without a fight. And so if you have been encountering these types of things, on the one hand, I would say, I'm sorry, because it's tough. No one likes to go through that stuff. And on the other hand, I would say, consider it pure joy, my brothers. Right? When the enemy is coming against you, it's because you've started to walk in the right direction and you're becoming dangerous enough that you just might reclaim some people for God's family too. I'm not asking you all to go out and be missionaries. What I am asking though is for you to listen to Holy Spirit and obey. There's a million roles in this kingdom. And each of you 
needs to be doing one or several of those things. So as we, as we close in worship, if you're just overwhelmed with his presence, just return that to him in thanksgiving and worship. If, if you're overwhelmed with his presence and you need to pray, pray. If you need to come forward and receive prayer, do it. If you need to just listen and consider what Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Just listen and consider. Okay, we don't just sing so that it's a thing to do after the, after the message is over. Okay? You do what you need to do in this moment. Just like there are millions of roles in this family of God, there are a bunch of different ways that people should be responding in this moment. And so I would gently nudge you in the direction of obedience, not just, I'm going to sing because that's time to sing. Obedience is way more important than your singing. God, you're up to something huge. And we will never begin to understand all of those things that you're doing. We just know that it's so big we can't, that we can't possibly understand it. That's the only thing we know for sure. And we're so thankful for that because we'd be terrible gods. We thank you for the, we thank you for that thread throughout the Bible. You showing us that even ones that you created to be these powerful gods, even they failed. Even the most powerful beings in the universe apart from you were not designed to be worshiped. We're not designed to be God, the most high God. So God, forgive us when we try to take that role from you. And God, help us to obey in this moment and going forward and listening closely to your voice so that we know exactly what we're supposed to be doing so that we can join in the greatest jailbreak of all time as we reclaim the nations.